0: This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. All our TorahAnytime viewers. Okay, so tonight we're going to be starting to speak about Purim. Uh, but it's not, the truth is, it's not only a topic about Purim, it's also a topic that is important, um, you know, just, just in general for character trait building. Um, you know, the topic is, is on, on happiness and gratitude. Two extremely, extremely important, uh, important topics. Oh, it reminds me, uh, tonight we're learning <speaking in the language> So now, the, we know that when Adal comes in, it says, When Adal comes in, we increase in our happiness. So the, the question that is asked, and, and the truth is, year after year, I really like speaking about this particular subject, about happiness regarding Adal, because, first of all, it's such an important topic. And second of all, there are so many people that are not happy. I don't want to say depressed, even though I could, and it'll be you know, factually correct. But, but people are just not in the happiness level that they need to be at. When, when, when the Torah says and tells us, the Chazal tells us, says, Nichna when Adal comes in, when the month of Adal comes in, we have to increase in our happiness. Just so that we understand this point, this means that, in general, we always have to be happy. It says, Nichna when the, when, when Av comes in, we decrease in our happiness. But you realize we're always happy. It's just the level of increase or decrease in our happiness. There's an obligation that we always have to be happy. Especially when we do mitzvot. When we do mitzvot, we also have to be happy. So when the Torah comes and tells us, be happy, you know, or increase in your happiness, that's a very, very hard... Like, like, you know, I was trying to explain it, uh, you know, once in... uh, Let's say you have a really, really good actor or an actress, and you tell them cry like on the spine and let's say they're really good and they're able to make real tears not like those eye drop tears like real real tears that they're able to produce now how are they able to do, be to do that let's say they're able to put themselves in a very sad situation in their mind and they bring themselves to a sad a sad point but that in a sense that doesn't make them sad it might make them sad for like a moment or two but it doesn't increase their essence that they're depressed now and sad let's say an actor has to be extremely extremely happy so they could put themselves in that mindset of being extremely, extremely happy, but it's very temporary. And that's not something that, sta- that stays. It's not something that sticks. So when you're telling somebody, hey, be happy, which is, by the way, the last thing that a person who is sad wants to hear, or you're sad, be happy. You know, chill out is the last thing that you want to tell somebody who just got into a car accident and has a bat in his hand. Um, chill out. i chill you. you, know, like, you know, it's a, so, so it's the last thing that you want to do. But the, So the question is, so the Torah says... Increasing your happiness. How? How are you supposed to increase in your happiness? The entire human race strives for happiness. And I say that with 100% confidence that this is what people strive for. Religious people, secular people, you know, people that strive for money, people that strive for relationships, people that strive for anything. When you break everything down, the goal of everyone's life is happiness, and that is, and you can break it down to that for anything. You ask somebody why he works to make money. Why do you want to make money so I could pay for stuff. Why do you need to pay for stuff? Because I need to live. I need to eat. I need to drink. I need to sleep. I need to have a roof over my shoulder. Why do you need all that? The more that you keep on asking, like a annoying three year old kid, right? Why? 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 Why is the sky blue? Why is this? Why is this until you don't have any answers anymore and you're making them up, which hopefully you don't. But uh, you know, you have the the you know the concept. That you keep on doing the why? 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 Eventually, it's going to come all to the one foundation point that is to make me happy. It's going to make me happy. Why are you getting married? Cause I love my spouse. No, you don't. You don't love any. You, it was like, fine. Cause I love myself. That's more factually correct, which is true. Uh, so now that you love yourself, now, now why do you want to go get married? Because this person makes me feel good. Whatever it is that you go, why do you want to have children? Children is very difficult to upbring. Very expensive. Cause ultimately, you're gonna say, you wanna give, you wanna give, you wanna help, you wanna, whatever it is that you wanna do, the more that you push eventually comes up because this is gonna make me happy. Even, even religion. You have know somebody, why do you want to be religious? So I need to do it, and you know, I wanna do it, it's gonna, Push comes to shove, it's going to get you what you want. In the next world, in this world, whatever it is, people have an agenda. Obviously, the highest level is to do something, you know, lishma, which means it's not for any other ulterior purposes. But the majority of people, they do something for a purpose, and that purpose, if you go ultimately, like the, the top of the, of, the, of the line, is going to be happiness. So, <coughs> what? <coughs> yeah, yeah, but that's a different sub- subject in, in itself. Did I make a, I didn't, I didn't drink here. here. So when when you're going and the and the Torah says, you know, be happy, there must be something very, very fundamental and important in this in this topic. And not only that, it's like a month. It's like the whole When the month of Allah comes in, you have to increase in your happiness. So I want to share with you something from Rabshim Shem Pinkis. Pinkus goes and says like this. It says that happiness in this world is strongly based on the power of new. That when you have something new, there is a you know, you feel like there's a happiness into it. And he he gives, Rav gives us an example of someone saying a dvar Torah. Let's say someone's saying something on the Torah, and you heard this already before. So the person could just say like three words, be like, oh, I know this already. I get it all the time. If I say a story that God forbid, chas v'shalom, you know, like, you know, I have to say, if I ever said this story or joke before again, I have people in the class already, you know, guess what's going to happen. Because if it's something even similar or familiar than what they heard before, they're not interested in it. Oh, I already heard it. It's not anymore. What are people interested? New Torah. Fresh. fresh something I never heard before. So it's like there's something with the newness that, that we, we, uh, we enjoy. It brings, us, it brings us an extra sense of happiness. You think of the concept of, of phones. So if somebody has a phone and there's an update that comes up, most people, not everybody, I would say 90% of people, a statistic that I just made up, 90% of people would go and would do that update. And in fact let's use another fake number, 80% of people. Um, I probably shouldn't say that fake number. I could just put that out there. Who's going to double check it, right? No, generally, I usually... because I, I, it's good. It's good it, no, I, I, every, every statistic that I bring down, every research that I do bring down is, is usually legitimate. Um, I don't know why I say usually. It's always legitimate. Um, except for the stuff that I make up. And this is something that I'm making up. So uh, usually I don't make it up. So the... I always don't make it up unless I say I make it up. Okay, I don't know why I'm digging my hole. Okay, so now... The... <clears throat> You get you get the this you know you get the, the what is it called the alert that you have an update available. We could update you from two to three a.m. if you would like. I like, know. I can't. I need it now. You know, like my phone's gonna shut down. It's gonna go. It has to be right now. H- How often can people push it off and be like, nah, I don't need it? What? Okay, so you're the ten percent. So you have a smartphone. No, no, not. I'm, not, I'm not talking about well, And that's why that's I'm furthermore going Because all the updates are not beneficial They're all they do I don't know about iPhones um, but, but I know updates generally slow the phone down To a certain extent Maybe some You know they slow the phone down So why would somebody It's a very like Oh I, I need to do it I have, I have people that they break It's called jail breaking the phone if I'm not mistaken So they can get the update earlier so they're able to get it early. I'm like, why do you need it so bad? And, like, people that are really obsessed with it, they, they destroy their phone internally, like, you know, the software wise, just so they'll be able to get their, you know, the, the newest update of Google. The newest update, I don't know if you can do it with iPhone. Apparently you can't do anything to iPhone. So, but, uh, but, uh, you know, like in the Google world, you're able to go and you're able to update. But you update it, it doesn't help you. But no, it's something new. It's something that we appreciate. There's something different about it. There's something new that we enjoy. We appreciate it. The same thing with cars. You have a car. That is working perfectly well. I'm not talking about just working well. and getting forward. I'm talking about luxurious. It has everything that you need. But yet, yeah, three years come up and we're like, okay, we need something new. But like, well, why? Why do you need something new? Everything here is already working and very, very good. Why all of a sudden do we need something new? Because we enjoy, we, we, we have this certain type of happiness when we're dealing with something new. Think about clothing for a second. Uh, You always think about that, but think about clothing right now, right? So when you're, when you're going and, and you're buying another article of clothing, do you need it? You don't need it. You have clothing to wear, but you want it. But why do you want this article of clothing more than you, you have stuff that maybe are nicer in your closet? But why would you want it? There's something else about getting something new that brings us this power of enjoyment, power of, of happiness. Uh, you know, you also have this, this concept in restaurants. Um, you have restaurants that are opening and closing. But when they open, sometimes in the beginning, they make a lot of money. Why do they make a lot of money? Because people want to try something new. But you have, let's say, a restaurant that you go to that you're very happy with. Every, the food is good, the service is good, everything is good. It doesn't matter. You'll take a risk and go somewhere else new because it's something new. It's something that I never had before. We're always chasing after something that is new. There's a certain happiness when we deal with something new. This is also why we have a bracha of Shehachianu. We make a bracha... That if you get, let's say, you eat a new fruit, or you get a new article of significant clothing, you make a shechianu on it. You buy a house, you buy a new house, you make a shechianu. So there's certain things when you're dealing with something new, there is a special happiness in it that we even attach a brachat to it. Now, the problem with this is that newness doesn't last. There's only a certain amount of new that will last. And I was, you know, I was speaking to um, to the guys last night and I was telling them there was a certain uh, car company that, if I'm not mistaken, I think it was Cadillac, that you paid an X amount of money, and every certain amount of months, you could just bring your car back into the lot, and you could take another car. So you take a flat fee that you constantly, you know, are able to recycle cars as much, because people like having a new car, a fresh car. So in the, let's say in the... um, in the winter, you could get a big SUV. In the summer, you get a sports car. And then, whatever the fall, whatever it is. So, people think that you have a lot of cars, whatever it is that, that, that people enjoy doing it, you're paying a hefty price tag for it. But people do it because you're constantly able to recycle uh, your cars. So, let's say you're taking someone like that. You know, let's say somebody doesn't ha- you know, has one car, gets a new car every three years. What do they feel after the third year? They feel okay, you know, like feel a little happiness. You got that fresh you know, car smell. Now they even sell you know, the Fresh car smell? I don't even know what that is. Is that like fresh leather scraped on there? I don't know whatever they put there, but there's a fresh car smell, and you have the fresh drive, and you're enjoying it. So you get that every three years. But let's say you are constantly getting that every few months, like you're doing this deal. So how is your enjoyment going to be? Eventually you're going to get used to it. You're going to get used to even the changeover. You're going to get used to even having something new. This is something known as hedonic adaptation. This means that when you're doing something, Eventually, you're going to get used to it, even if it's something new. They made a study. This is a very famous study on lottery winners. How or how much after they win the lottery do they feel like back to their baseline where it was before they won the lottery? And it came out with a crazy, crazy, uh, you know, number that it was uh, 18 months. Imagine that. You, may, you win $50 million. 18 months later, your baseline happiness is the same happiness as it was 18 months ago on the average, that's a very, very scary, scary, uh, you know, statistic. You have, um, you know, if we could understand this, imagine somebody goes and has a... L- medically, the doctor tells him you cannot have f- solid food for two months. All, everything is... I know some people actually do that voluntarily, you know, for um, cleanses and I don't know whatever other godforsaken reason that they, you know, they uh, people do this. I don't know what's the difference. So you you juice a steak instead of eating a steak. I, like I, I don't know what it does. But in any case, so um, the 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 doctor says no solids for two months. So you're off solid for two months, and then finally you're able to have whatever pizza, whatever it is that 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 one you know solid thing imagine that first bite. How much are you going to enjoy that first bite? Now, how about the second bite? It's going to be, uh, this is a little bit less. How about the fifth bite? By the tenth bite, and by the fourteenth slice, when you're already cursing your life, you're going to, you're not going to feel any difference anymore. You're already used to it already. This is the hedonic adaptation. I like to also use the example of, uh, let's say you're going to the, let's say somebody gets lost in the woods. And the person gets lost in the woods, and they have to sleep, in the woods, in the jungle woods, whatever, pick your fancy. In the desert, even. So imagine falling asleep. In the you're leaning against a tree. First of all, you're not going to be able to sleep because your own breathing is going to scare you. But who's there? You know, like, and every time there's going to be some. You're, you're, there's going to be a wind. You think that something's crawling up your leg, and everything. You know, imagine. Oh, just imagine. Put yourself in that situation. Imagine sleeping in a hard, cold floor in the forest with all the bugs, the rats, the other animals, whichever woods you're going into. That that uh, you know that are there. Beers, you know, like like. Like a very serious thing. And imagine you're stuck there for three nights. You're barely sleeping. You're barely able to focus. And then finally you get rescued. And when you get rescued, you go and you, you go you take your hot shower and then you go sleep in your bed. Now you're gonna sleep in the bed, you can feel so you're gonna fall asleep right away. And you're gonna appreciate that bed. But the next night are you gonna appreciate that bed? Yeah, maybe. But about a week later you're you're back to your baseline that you're not appreciating it, you're not enjoying it as much as you did it the first time. The, uh, this concept of enjoyment, this concept of pleasure, we, uh, this is something we spoke about before. What is the pleasure in the world to come? In about what is the pleasure that you get? So Rav Dessler explains this. That imagine, and this is a, this is a very important concept to understand. I, I, we spoke about this a long, long time ago, but I think it's very, very important to re- to review this to understand what we're dealing with when we're dealing with reward in the world to come. What is reward in the world to come? Like what? You're going to have it not like that uh, you know the Muslims say that there's going to be a certain amount of uh, you know of. of Doesn't say woman, just says virgin. You know, the virgin's gonna be over there. Like what like that's that's a very, very physical type of pleasure. We're talking about something else in its entirety. The Desa goes and explains like this. Imagine in life. In life, we have pleasures that are that are sporadic. We'll have like good times, we have bad times, we have neutral times. Imagine you take all your good times and you combine it to one moment, and then you take that pleasure. Imagine you put it into a pill. And you take that pill. Imagine the pleasure that you have your entire life. From the moment that you are born until the day that you die at 120, you take all the pleasure that you have in your life and you take that pill. How much pleasure are you gonna have? Like a crazy, crazy amount of pleasure. Now it says that imagine you take your entire let's say it's entire Brooklyn. There's a lot of people here. Right? You know what? Let's skip a step. You take an entire New York. There's a lot of people in New York, right? You take how many people are in New York? No one cares. Okay. So uh there's a lot of people in the entire New York. You take all that and the entire life. All their pleasures that they had, you take all the bad, all the neutral, you take it out. You take only the pleasures of all the blank amount of people that are that live in New York, and you take that pill. That's probably going to explode your brain. You're probably going to die from pleasure. You're not even able to to, 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 you know, capable to, to, uh, you know, to hold that in. But imagine you take people from the entire America, like what is it, 400 million people? Let's say 400 million people. Only the pleasures that they had, and you take that in one moment. Can, can we stop for a second to like picture how much pleasure that's going to be? And if you can, think about the pain side. Think about how much pain that's going to be if you do it for the pain side. Then flip it to the pleasure. Imagine how much pleasure you're dealing with. Then goes says, Rav says, imagine you take everybody in the world. Taking 7 billion people. right? You take 7 billion people. From the moment that they're born to the moment that they die, every single part of their pleasure, you combine everything. You suck it out of it. You have this crazy machine. right? You suck it out of that. You put it into one machine. Out comes a little blue pill. And then you pop it. And then you die. But I'm saying you have for like a moment of pleasure. But I'm saying, you you, imagine you're able to take that pleasure. Can we we anticipate how much pleasure that is? Cesar Abdesler, one more step. Imagine taking everybody ever alive on planet Earth from the beginning of creation until the end of creation. Taking only their good. Leaving every bad out, every neutral out. Taking only the pleasure that they had. Combining it into one moment. Putting it into a pill. Popping it in your mouth. Imagine how much pleasure that's going to be. Cesar Abdesler... All that doesn't even come close to one moment in Olam Let me repeat that, so that you're clear with what we're dealing with over here. The entire world, everybody that was ever created, all their pleasures, they put it into one ball, one moment, and you take that one moment, it doesn't even class, come cl- close to one moment in Olam Now, what type of moment in Olam There's levels of Olam Haba. What, what type of moment, says Rabbi Imagine you have a poor person walking past by this kitchen. And out comes a little smell of what's baking in that kitchen. And you smell it. That oh, smells good. Then your mouth starts watering and you're excited you, because why you take this route and you're going to lose your diet. Whatever it is, right? We know the whole story. So, But you, you're going and you're, you're, you're enjoying that smell. You know that smell? You know that you walk past by a bakery? always smells better than it tastes for some reason, right? You, you go and you smell that and you enjoy that. You appreciate that. That's the pleasure that we're talking about. Imagine someone goes in the next world and just walks past by Olamaba, Not even going inside olamaba Just walking, obviously it's not like, a, you know, it's like Olamaba entrance, you know, like, um, you know, like, but imagine, picture this, you walk past by and there's a little width that comes out, and you're, and you have that enjoyment, that enjoyment is greater than all the enjoyment of everybody that was ever created, that ever lived, in the entire creation of the world combined in one moment. So do we understand what we're dealing with over here? But now we have to understand, you have a question? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I thought I figured that's who you were going to ask. I did not. Um, so, how do we know these things? So, the way that we know anything is because that's the Torah. And how do we know things from the Torah? Mm-hmm. This has been Mishnah Perkei This is Mishnah Perkei How do we know the? So, how do we know the, the Torah? How do we know the oral law? It's because it was given to to, uh, to Moshe Rabbeinu. Um, so now, the same way that we know. Many, many things that we can't... Account- the same, the, People have this question when, let's say, people start speaking about Gehenom, about hell. How do we know about all this stuff? That's where you have a, que- that's where you have a problem? How do we know we're supposed to keep 613 commandments? How do we know that? You don't ask by that. Why are you asked by this? Because they see it as something else. Like, oh, if it doesn't say it's straight out in the Torah, then it must be, then it's not there. But no, it's in the oral law. And now the oral law that now that it's, it's, uh, more available because it became written after not Nasi wrote it down. and put it, to, I didn't write it down, he put it together. So you have also a lot of things that are more available, uh, you know, in, in a written, a written format. But everything that we have, it's not just, you know, somebody who just like, were decided to be like, you know, what, it's gonna sound really good. You know, let's do this, or so someone inventing some things. You're not allowed to do that in the, in the Torah. So the Torah is everything is, um, that is, that is brought down, is brought down because there is a source and it comes straight from God. Okay. So now, in order, now think about this, this concept on Alamaba. So let's say you get to Alamaba, and, not let's say, in May al when we all get to Alamaba, right, you go over there and you have the first moment of pleasure. It's gonna be crazy, unbelievable, we just spoke about it, how, but what about the second moment? It, there's a newness to it. And what happens to the newness? You take a steak, you take the first bite, it's delicious. You take the second bite, a little bit less. The third bite, a little bit less. By the fifth and sixth bite, you're crying already because you broke your, whatever it is. All right? We're not going go to go into that. So your, your, your enjoyment is decreasing as you participate in that particular pleasure. What's going to be olanamaba? So, it says, in eternity, in the time there, this, it's something that goes on forever. But what's going to happen? The every moment is going to be greater in pleasure than the previous moment. Which puts this on a whole so which means is every moment, moment is going to be like a new moment. That's the only way that you're going to have, that you're going to be able to, to, uh, you know, have the ultimate type of pleasure. Because even if you have the highest level of pleasure ever, 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 eventually you're going to get used to it. And it's not going to be new. But it's not going to be like that. It's something that it's going to be something that it's going to be continuous, that it's going to be new, 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 new again, every, every, uh, uh, you know, every moment. So, now when we understand that, that, that could be, make sense in the, in the spiritual world, but in the physical world, nature, there's a limit to nature. And that's why, by the way, when you look at the Torah, when you, someone who's learning a Torah, someone's learning a page of Gemara, and he learns it for the hundredth time, he still enjoys it. I don't know anybody who could read the same page of chemistry the hundredth time and be like, oh, I still enjoy it. There's nothing new that you're learning. But when you're learning the Torah, there's always chidoshim, there's always something new that comes out of it. Now, when I speak to people, let's say, in, uh, um, that are in the relationships, or that, let's say they're dating, I think this is more. This, I get this more by men, but I've been recently getting it a lot also from women. Also, There's a very very common annoying statement. Well, maybe there's something better out there. You ever heard this? Yeah. So you're dating somebody, um, and and uh, this person uh, you know goes and you say like, listen, I don't know, maybe I could do better. Maybe there's something better out there. So I usually ask them, uh, you know, are you are you happy with what's going on right now? He's like, yeah, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm pretty happy. So uh, um, so I said, what's what's the problem then? Says, no, but maybe, maybe there's something better. I'm saying, you're not looking for something better. You're looking for something new. You're looking for something different. If everything's okay, obviously, if there's no connection, there's a, there's a thousand things in between that could fall apart. But if everything is perfect and you think you can do something better, the first thing I tell them is, guess what? You can't. You know, do you know how much of a loser you are? Like, I may, let me, <laughs> it's a good thing you came to me. Um, here's the things of, uh, like, well, you know, like, sometimes, you know, there was a story that there was a woman who, um, she, you know, she, she, she was a good girl, and after a long period of time, she decides she's ready to date. And she goes and she dates, and the first person that they set him up with, set, that she gets set up with, is somebody who is like um, the Hunchback of Notre Dame looks good compared to this person, right? So, like, and and quality, character, everything. And she's like, "Are you kidding me?" It's like, "What's going on?" If he goes to date, be like, "I can't believe this is what people said. This is what shit of dating is all about. This is what they set me up with over here. What is he going to be ringing bells over here? Like, what's yeah. going on?" So. He goes, at, she goes and she says, she says no. And then she's, you know, obviously you start getting picky. Like we, and then she gets set up with another guy. And this guy, she goes up, she goes out with him. And he's a mediocre guy, like a regular, normal, just plain mediocre. Like a very, very medium to like type of guy. I don't know what the terminology of it. Average. Thank you. Average type of guy. She's like, okay, listen, compared to the other guy. I mean, whatever. He's, you know. His worlds are different, but he's still average. But you know what? Let me take another shot, another shot, another shot. Eventually, they're dating for a certain you know period of time that everything seemed to work well, and they end up uh, they end up getting engaged, and end up getting married. A while goes by, and she she contacts the person that set her up with the first you know um, you know hunchback, and it wasn't a hunchback, but I'm saying like mm-hmm. Kiilu, and um, she she goes and she says, you know, I want to thank you. Says if I wouldn't have gone out with him first, then when I would have went out with my husband, I would have never said yes. I think I deserve better. Like, I think I had a high. But now I see, like, this is perfect for me. Everything is great. You know, everything, there's a rabbi that says that, that when he, when, some Israeli rabbi, I forgot who it was, Um maybe it was a Rabbi Zakfanga, like I don't remember. He says, he doesn't like to say that it's perfect in other people's marriage. Cause then I'd be like, wait, someone else is better than mine? He says, who's perfect? No one's perfect. Everyone has their issues. Right? But, but it was a good, it was a good marriage. And she realized that if she would not have gone out with the first Let's call him Shlomazel, loser uh, person. Then she would have never ever continued with her current situation because she put herself down. Because if we constantly think, "Oh, is there always going to be something better? We're never going to be able to go, and we're never going to be able to actually tie down to the to a, a very good, you know, or or your perfect soulmate, you know, situation." But what happens when people say that? It's because they're looking for something new. They're looking for something different. The even furthermore, when we're when we're speaking about something new and something different, it changes the way that we behave. Let's say you have a, you know, let's say somebody has a very, very wild child and the child's running. What happens when a guest comes into the house? The first time they see the guest, they're a little, a little bit well behaved because it's a new situation. The second time they see the guest, they're like, okay, a little bit less, you know, well behaved, but eventually they get used to it. But when something new, they, you know, they, they appreciate it. They, they they're able to like keep themselves in control. I remember like maybe it's a week or two ago on Shabbat. I was walking past by, um, a husband and a wife and a little baby. And the little baby was laying flat on the floor. Um, and you know, so, you know, many people don't carry. On, on in the bodega in Brooklyn, so they, they weren't obviously caring. So they were trying to, you know, speak to the baby. If you stand up right now, I'm going to buy you a blah, blah blah blah. Right? So like they were trying to, and the baby was just like standing on the floor over there, and it was relaxing. It was in a very puffy coat that so seems to be very comfortable, and it was just sitting over there. If I wasn't in a rush, uh, I wasn't a rush. So all I told them was good luck, um, and they were like thank you. <laughs> um, so if I wasn't in a rush, what I would have offered, I'd be like. You walk away. Let me all of a sudden take the baby, and I'll walk with. I'm not gonna take the baby. Relax. But <laughs> I'll bring him back here when he's 18 years old. Um, problem is, probably say, "All right, <laughs> you know, thanks." Um, so, but what happens if no one's away and, and a stranger all of a sudden says, "Hey, why don't you come up? Why don't you? I'm gonna walk with you." No, no, no. they run up and they run away. To, you know, to their to their mom and dad. They run away to their parents. Why? Because there's something new. There's something different. We behave different. If there's someone who's an abusive spouse in public. Generally, no one's going to go and start being abusive to somebody else in public because you know, like it's different, it's new. You can't, you you know, you can't do that. The uh, even even the way that we treat our new items versus our old items. I can speak this because I know a lot of guys who deal get new cars, right? A lot of my students, uh, you know, this is their age, you know, they're dealing with the cars. So, what happens when they get a new car? They get a first of all, it is their baby. They have a special rag that they clean. Their room and their house looks like tornado went through it, you know, a few times. Um, but their car is spotless. They have the duster thingy, and then they have a rag, and then they have a spritcher over there. Everything is ca- no one's allowed to walk those. Every- you're acting so- what happened? Go to that guy one year down the line. There is crumbs under the seat from last day after Pesach was over, right? He has everything already saved up. Eh, whatever. Once it's not new anymore, you don't appreciate it. You have a new, Expensive dress and you get a rip in it. You're like, Oh, this is ridiculous you get so upset. But let's say you had that dress for like seventeen years. But it's still expensive. It doesn't bother it doesn't hurt so much when it when it's not when it's not new anymore. By the way, the same thing goes in dating. And dating you're in a new situation. So you're always on your best behavior. But the second that you get used to the other, spe- the other person, then all of a sudden, you know, your guard comes down a little bit and then the true you really comes out. So when we're dealing with new, th- there's something very, very different when we're dealing with newness. There's an extra happiness on, on newness. So what does newness have to do with Purim? Says up Shem Shem is something so fascinating, so beautiful. What happened on Purim? On Purim, there was a decree. The decree was that the entire Jewish nation was supposed to be destroyed, killed. Men, women, and children. Old, young, everybody on one day. Now, Chazal tells us this is not only a decree down here. This was a decree also in heaven. God also decreed that the Jewish people should be destroyed. It was decreed to a stand. By the way, you know what was the. How did the Jews seal that? From the party. What's the problem going to a kosher party? <laughs> oh, I don't know. Well, read the story of Porim. So, um the unless you want to fast for 3 days which they did after the party so maybe uh, you know so in any case the um the decree was spiritually that the Jewish people were going to be destroyed. Now, in in heaven, God there's no time. God sees the past, present, and future all at once. If there is a decree, even though the decree was not in blood, it wasn't. It was it was it was, Lomadam, it was not with blood, but still it was a decree. And obviously, so it's a like a lesser type of a, a, a decree, but it was still a decree nonetheless. So when God puts a decree, stamps a decree that the Jewish people are supposed to be destroyed, guess what? They die. There's no Jewish people anymore, meaning that because there's no time, so the second the a decree is put out there, everything happens instantaneously. So now, <clears throat> what happened? In this world, the Jews did the chubah, whatever, they were able to go, and the decree was revoked. So what happened in the next world? It wasn't okay. No, all of a sudden, the Jews were spiritually, clinically dead, but then all of a sudden, the, the decree was revoked. That is in essence a triat It's a resurrection of the dead. The Jews were resurrected, meaning that they died, and now they became back to life. This is why, by the way, in Purim, it says, The, the Jews accepted the Torah. Why well, they accepted what well, they didn't accept, it, you know, what they, what they already accepted before. Why did they accept the Torah already? We did it already in Hassanite. But the answer is because you died, you are in spiritual death. It was decreed that you're going to die, and now you, all of a sudden you're coming back to life. You come back to life. You have to reaccept the torah. So they had to reaccept the, you know, reaccept the torah. So the happiness. What is the happiness of pulim? The ultimate happiness. You know who's new? You're new. You weren't supposed to be here on pulim. Every single one of us was decreed to die, and all of a sudden we come back to life again. What better enjoyment do you have in newness? What better appreciation do you have when you're dealing with your own life that it comes and gets saved? The, we have to understand this. There's a there's a pasuk in Kohelet chapter 1, verse 9, There is nothing new under the sun. So when there's nothing new under the sun, meaning that everything that was is everything that will be, there's nothing new under the sun, so how can we, we stand to this happiness? When we are dealing with happiness, we're not supposed to deal with the happiness in a small little, like an actor acting in the happiness, feels happy, and then two minutes later they need to be on antidepressants again. No, when you mean happiness, it means that you have to physically feel different, you have to physically feel happy. So what is the happiness over here if, the, if Shlomo Mel tells us there's nothing new under the sun, so how can we keep this up? So we want to go and discuss uh you know tonight regarding the the you know the concept of gratitude. Now there there's different levels of, of gratitude which was we're we're going to you know try to, to tackle. The if somebody was supposed to die and then they came back to life, they have a different appreciation on life. And that appreciation can bring a person to happiness. I want to share with you some studies. These are legitimate studies. I have to make that clear. Um okay. Harvard put out an article that gratitude. Is strongly associated with greater happiness, and you know there, there was there was studies and studies done that gratitude increases the dopamine and the serotonin levels, which is the the feelings of contentment that goes on in your brain. It makes you feel better about yourself. It makes you feel happier about yourself when you're more grateful. So if you're more grateful, it has a physical change on your body. It changes the way that you perceive things. It changes the way that you feel. Which means is if you tell someone thank you, you're thinking okay, fine, I'm being nice. No, 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 you're being nice to yourself. You're making yourself feel good. It's like a drug. If you do it enough, if, if, if it can be gratitude junkies. Hey, 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 thank you, thank you so much. You know, hey, 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 you, hey, hey, you, you, you come. coming. Thank you, thank you. You know, that if we would really appreciate what, what gratitude does, we'll just thank everybody nonstop because it really changes the way that we perceive things and the it changes the way that we feel. There was researchers from the University of California and the University of Miami that they did a um, a study on people that expressed gratitude for 10 weeks. 10 consecutive weeks. And they saw that their optimism level rose up. Now, their gratitude and optimism, you would think they're not so, so much related. But they saw when a person is grateful, their optimism, their level of optimism was was, uh, was was raised. And Harvard University made a study that one life-lengthening trait is optimism. So for people that always go and be the, the half-glass-empty people, you're signing your sentence, according to Harvard, for an early death, early termination. Right? If you want to have a long life, you have to be optimistic, which we know is all based on the foundation of imunah mitochon as well. But when we think about how important it is to be, uh, you know, optimistic. The, there was a, there was a study done that on on, uh, on relationships that if you're more grateful to your spouse. Or to any relationship, that relationship grows stronger. And they had they had so many studies on this that even to the extent that if you're grateful to your other to your spouse or to any other relationship for that matter, then there's a close connection that's that's bound. To, I'm not talking about grateful just in your mind. I'm saying a verbal you verbally verbalize you know the gratefulness. And when you're doing that, there's a closer connection that you build because of that. Now there was a, one of the longest studying on human development ever ever uh, you know created studied. You know, done is was a seventy. Is a, it's a, it's still ongoing. It's a seventy-five. It's still it's on its seventy-fifth year, um, and it's track. It, it was tracking the life of hundred and twenty-four men, and year after year they asked about their work, their home lives, their health, and they were trying to determine what makes them have a meaningful and healthy life. And uh, to date, I think there's about 60 of them that are still alive out of that first uh, 724. But they still, you know, they continued, you know, the study with, you know, with more baby boomers. They're they're continuing the study. And they found something that uh, relationships play a very, very strong role in your happiness. And to the extent that Harvard University said that the number one predictor of health and happiness in a person's life is the quality of their relationships. And how do you build on your relationships? Gratitude. Gratitude builds in your relationship, which means is if you have if you have if you have the 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 capabilities of being grateful, that will make your relationship stronger, and hence you will have a very much more successful and happier life. Let's see how it relates to, uh, you know, to Purim. There is a mitzvah of Bikurim. Bikurim is where you bring the first ripened fruit to you and you present it to the kohen. Now, there's a midrash in, in Bereshit that that speaks about when the Torah says Rashit, it means that the world was created for the sake of Rashid. What was Rashid? So it gives you three uh, three different uh, you know ideas on Rashid. Number one is the Jewish people. Israel, the Jewish people, are known as Rashid. Number two is the Torah. The Torah is also known as Rashid. Number three is Bikurim. Bikurim is also known as Rashid. Now what's so... Says the as- Al Says, what's so big about the, the Bikurim? That we are putting that in the top three? Bikurim, again, you're bringing the first fruit to the Quran. This is what makes it to the top three on the list. Why is this so important? Says the Sheikh as- because the mitzvah of Bikurim contains something that is a very fundamental for being a proper human being. And that is the mitzvah of gratitude. Because when you're bringing the Bikurim, you're, when you're bringing it over here, it is also accompanied by a declaration of expressing one's gratitude to God. That God gave you fruits. Now you're bringing it to the choir and you're expressing gratitude. So fundamental is gratitude that it made it up to the top three. The Rambam in Hilchot Torah brings down also that in order to attain love and fear of God, you have to go and you have to look at the world and you have to see the great deeds that God does and you have to appreciate it. And when you appreciate it and you contemplate it, the more that you do it, it's going to bring you to fear of wisdom. It's very, very fundamental to be grateful. So much so that our sages teaches us that, that God goes and ex- exacts like retribution for ingrates. People that are not grateful are very, very problematic in God's eyes. To the extent that Peket de la says that nothing is harder for the Almighty to live in as it is to live with an ungrateful person. Now, when we look at Adam Arishon, Adam Arishon was exiled from the Garden of Eden. One of the reasons was because of ingratitude. What was the ingratitude? What did Adam Arishon say? The woman that you gave me is the one that gave me the fruit, you know, the fruit from the tree. The woman that I gave you it says, I did you a favor. I gave you a woman as you know have an you have something that was beneficial it says even that Adam asked for it so now that you asked for something and it says the woman that you gave me you're not grateful for it kisht out of out of uh, out of uh, um, out of the also in the in the midbar what are the Jewish, how did the Jewish people anger God over there? They said, oh, remember the good old days when we were in Egypt. Says, what a good old days. I saved you from Egypt. I took you out of Egypt. But you're not, you're not grateful? If someone was not grateful, the Midrash goes on and says that someone who's not grateful is as if they were, they had the kfirah. Kfirah beikar means that they had, they had fundamental theological denial of God. That's what it deals when you're ungrateful. Imagine this scenario. There was a guy who, um, let's call him Shlomo. And this guy, Shlomo, he loves nature. He found out that there was, uh, there was a three-day hike... In a crazy, you know, in the Amazon jungle. Like really somewhere crazy. Um, very, very rare. You see like crazy scenes, crazy sights. He was so in love with with the, with the concept of nature. He said, he told his wife, he says, that's it. I'm booking this thing. We're going to the once in a lifetime opportunity. They go over there. They hike for three days straight. They go in a crazy, crazy... Then no one else will ever take them. So they go and they book it. Now there's one thing about this Shlomo that he was very, very meticulous and particular about time. If his If his wife... Was five minutes late. She knew she had to close all the windows because stuff is going to go down over here. That's going to be bad for the grandchildren shidduchim. That's how bad, you know. Because if it didn't come out there, you know the Japanese are like that. They're also, Yakim are like that. Everything, you know, you have a yaki, right? So if something is called, if there's a wedding that's called for eight o'clock, he's there at eight o'clock, right? Svaladim and whatever it is Sfaradim and certain chassidim you know it's cold for 8 o'clock they're there sharp at 10.15 right sharp you know like for and expecting to make it to the chubah and they usually do Um, so you know there's but there's certain people very very meticulous you have to be strictly on time if somebody made him wait even 5 minutes his blood pressure would boil you know like he felt like you know steam would be coming out of his ears and nose you know it was it, it was a situation let's just leave it at that so they go, they fly down to, you know, the, you know, wherever it was near the jungle over there, and they take a, you know, they take a jeep over there, they start to out the tour. Now, the first morning, day one, uh, people are getting ready. Now, the, the tour guide said, listen, he says, one thing we need to have here very, very clear, he says, we have, we're packing in a lot of things happening in, in three days. If we're not exactly on time on schedule, he says, we're missing very, very important things. Shlomo goes, his wife says, I like this guy already. He says, the first night, the fir- I'm sorry, the first morning, the first morning... People are getting ready. They were supposed to leave 8 o'clock sharp. It's 8.05. So Shlomo's pacing already, right? He's using his deep breath. He's starting to talk to himself. You know, the normal stuff that people that have anger issues do. So um, he's walking back and forth. He's like, it's 8.05. What am I going to do? He's cracking his knuckles. He's, you know, cracking his neck. He's cracking his back. I'm just doing that because I need to crack it. Okay, (laughs) so he's going and he is fuming. 20 minutes go by, finally everybody is ready except for one person. And he's like, you have got to be kidding me. Right, his jaws are clenching, his TMJ acting up. He is really in another whole world. Finally, 25 minutes goes, he's like, that's it. He barges into this guy's tent and he says, how dare you, what are you sleeping? It's 25 minutes, we're all waiting for you, who do you think you are? This guy, you know, enjoyed the snooze button a little too much and he's like, oh, I'm so sorry, you know, he like runs, he folds up his tent and he runs out, you know, still slipping on his coffee while while he's running out. Now, this guy, Mike, who tends to enjoy his snooze button, was uh, somebody who intends to enjoy his snooze button all the time. Now, you know, day one, that's what happened. Day two, everybody's getting ready. Says this day, he was jam-packed. Day two, 7 a.m., everybody has to be up. So what happens? 6.55, Shlomo is waiting there with his packed bags. He's sitting there and he's waiting. And it comes 8 o'clock, pacing begins. 8.05, everybody's gathering. 8.10, everybody's there except for one guy, Mike. Mike is sitting over there. He's enjoying himself. He's in the snooze button, and he's he's going back and forth. And he's like, "Oh, you gotta be kidding me!" You know, he's starting this talking to himself, and then finally he goes and he barges open to the door, and, and you know, to Mike's tent. He's like, "Two days in a row? Are you kidding me? Two days? Do you know who do you think you are? You have to make everybody wait over here." Now, at this point, everybody knew you don't mess with Shlomo, right? If the time comes, you're there. Otherwise, you have him to deal with. So it was a situation that, you know, that he built himself a reputation in a very short period of time that people were scared of him. So they, um, they're going on day two. It was a very, very, uh, uh, you know, heavy heavily, uh, you know, filled up trip. And they get to a certain point where the tour guide gathers everybody around and says, listen, he says this is one of the most, you know, extreme parts of the trip. He says, here we're going to split. You can either come with me or you can either come with my assistant. He says, if you come with me, we're going on an extremely, extremely dangerous route. That this route, if you slip and fall, that's automatic death. Nobody ever. It's a very, very. It's a. It's a. You're walking on an edge, and you have to hold onto a wire, and it's a very thin wire. He says, you know, like you guys signed this waiver before you came in, and in case you die, you can't sue anybody. But this is where we're. So, we're this is why we want you to decide for this particular situation. So, the uh, generally, what happened was the woman. Went with the assistant, um, and most of the men went with the you know, I'm nope a man. Nothing scares me. Um, so they, that's how they, they split. Obviously, you had a few you know that uh, stragglers that went onto each side, and um, they're they're traveling, and they get to the point where the the cliff. This is the this, you know, this is the this is where you know if uh, you know this is we tell if you're a man or if you're a boy. And a few men looked over there and said, "I'm sorry, we're boys. We're going back." They're like, I don't care what that. We're not doing this. You know, you're talking about a heavy, heavy drug. Like we don't need it. So they went back to the assistant and they took the other route with the, um, the more feministic route. So uh, they went and, um, and and there was a few people. Shlomo was there. His wife said, you know what? I'm not doing this. I'll meet you. I'll meet you on the other side and shlomo and a few other guys took this this uh this thing he's like listen this is why i came here for this is supposed to be the best moment this is something that would be life-changing so um they're going and the instructor is telling them says listen guys he says there's absolutely no photographs your your hands are always on the wire always on the on you know on the foot you take one step and one step you're holding on at all times you are not doing anything but holding on and walking as i say it was okay, we understand, and they start doing it. And they start walking in it. I don't know if you guys ever walked on ledges before. I hope you didn't. But if you did, you realize the, the, you know, the fear that you have when you're, when you're literally walking over there and there's stories that you're, you know, could fall down. This is like instant death. So if there is a serious, uh, um, you know, you know, consequence that, that deals with it. And they're doing it, everything is working fine. Then they're going on the cliff and they're going around the edge. They're around the, around the bend. And when they go around the bend, They see something, and this is the view. This is the view that everyone talks about. This is unbelievable. This is some. This is the whole point of the trip. You see, like waterfalls, and it's a crazy, crazy, crazy view. They, you know, Shlomo turns around. He sees this, and he's like, "Oh, it's a photo opportunity." You know those people that own an Instagram account. It's a photo opportunity. You know, so he's like, he's like, "I can't. I need to." And he's looking back and forth. You know, the tour guide is all the way up in the front. He's close to the back. There's only a few people behind him. He says, I gotta do it. He takes out his phone and he starts taking he starts taking some pictures. And he's like, This is crazy, this is unbelievable. And he's taking pictures and then while he's taking a picture, he only has one hand on the you know on the wire and he's taking the picture. And as he's taking the picture, the phone, you know, sort of fumbles out. Now the phone fumbled up like upward somehow. And what he did was, you know, he tried to, to catch it. And then there was there was like a split second, you know, there's a split second where you're like, Oh, I messed up. Oh, so he grabbed... He tried to grab the phone, but then he realized that his other hand is not on there. And he was like on a, a slowly tilt. And, he, he, you know, like he freeze, And he just started screaming. He just started screaming and screaming and everybody else was looking at it. They were also... They were all like... They were crazy, you know, like frozen. And, you know, in this particular... Um, this particular, like, path, there were there were, you know, vines that were hanging down. And the tour guide said, make sure... You hold on to the wire and not to the vine. Some vines are very strong, some vines are very weak. Be very, very careful that you're holding on only to the wire. At this point, Shlomo is not holding on to anything. And it's slow motion in the cartoon style, he's slowly tilting over, screaming. Meanwhile, Mike was two people behind him. He sees all this happening. Somehow he grabs a vine and he swings out from two people <laughs> and he just pushes him back onto the, to the, you know, grabs onto him and they both. Fall back onto the, um, you know, onto the wire. And Shlomo sitting over there. By the way, at this point, the phone fell to the extent that they, as he came back already, the phone was still falling. And then they walk up and they make a little, you know, sound where everything went into a thousand pieces. And Shlomo sitting over there with, with his hands and, you know, Obviously, he urinated already. So, um, you know, he's sitting over there, and he's walking like this, and then he's like, he's taking this is this is that mountain. It took him like an hour just to get out. He was shaking. You know, the tour guide had to, everybody had to go. He had to come back and I had to hold them and be like, okay, come, come. He was shaking in his pants. Afterwards, they all get the all the men get back, you know, together, and they say, listen, they say like, now you see why you're not supposed to take any pictures. But I'm going to ask you guys, please, a favor: do not mention this to the group because if the group hears about this, they're going to you know be scared. Let's leave this to the end. Let's you know. Let's keep this on the on a down low. Meanwhile, um Shlomo's in a fetal position, um, <laughs> you know, praying to God, and you know, like not sure what to do. It took him like a while to finally get it, you know, his composure back. He goes over to Mike and says, you know, he thanks him, and he says, you know, I, I can't begin to you know thank you for everything that you have done. And uh, and they continue on the tour. They get to you know they get uh, the tour. You know they continue the guide, and that and, you know the day finishes. The day finishes. They go to sleep. Day number three. Day number three. The tour, the tour guide says, listen, he says, today, everybody has to be up at 6 o'clock sharp. We have a full pack day. And he says, we have to go. Everything has to be exactly on time. So 6 o'clock, everybody's up. Shlomo's up. He's got his bags over there. Everybody's up except for who? Except for Mike. So they're waiting over there. Shlomo's sitting there, calm. Calm as a cucumber. He's not pacing. 6, 6.05. Finally, 6.25 comes. Mike is still not coming out of his tent. Um, so uh, somebody comes over to Shlomo, because you he know he's a designated annoying person, he says, uh, he says, listen, he says, six um, twenty-five. Shlomo says, oh, is it? Yeah, oh, did you look at that? Okay, thank you. And he sits there, relax and calm. Ten minutes go by. It's six thirty-five. Another guy comes over to Shlomo and says, um, hey, listen, it's uh, it's six thirty-five. If we don't leave now, we're going to miss a lot of things. He's like, oh, isn't that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess you're right. Wow. Okay, thank you for letting me know the time. (laughs) And they're like, what has gotten into him? Like, what's going on? They don't know what's going on with him. Finally, 45 minutes goes by. Mike is still in his tent. And finally, one guy goes up and he says, that's it, I had it. He starts, he drops his bag. He storms up right up to Mike's tent. Meanwhile, Shlomo jumps up, runs right in front of this guy, stops him right in front front of Mike's tent. And he says, where do you think you're going? (laughs) He says, I'm going to wake up Mike. He's so late, he's making us late again. He's like, you know how hard this guy works? He's so tired. Let him sleep. Why are you going? Are you bothering him? He, says, Let him? he says, what is going on with you? He says, it's 45 minutes late. You would have had a heart attack yesterday by this point in time. How are you not waking him up? He says, Mike is tired. Let him rest. Relax. Gosh, what's so uptight, you guys. You know. And finally, they were like, what's going on with you? What's different? Finally, Slomo goes and says, listen. He says, this guy, Mike... Yesterday, he saved a person's life. He says, you know, and it was my life that he saved. So if you want to wake Mike up, you got to go through me. Everybody sat down, <laughs> held their stuff, and were relaxed. And he was standing guard in Mike's tent. Right? I don't know. Ten minutes later, Mike wakes up with all little screaming. Um, he gets out of his tent. He wakes up. He's like, what time is it, guys? Meanwhile, Slomo runs all over to him. you like some eggs? How did you sleep? Is everything Okay. It's like, what can I do? You need a massage, a professional shiatsu massage. What do you need? What's going on? How are you? You know? And uh, so the question is, what changed? What changed? It's the same guy, woke up the same way. What changed? The answer is one thing. He had gratitude now. He had gratitude. When he had gratitude, he became more grateful. You become less upset. The... Concept that we were resurrected. We had a... We, had, we were, became resurrected back from life. What does that mean? It says, you know how happy you are? Nothing can make you sweat. Nothing can bother you. Are you kidding me? I'm so happy to be alive. You're so happy to be alive. Of course you'd be happy. Of course, we just got resurrected. What is not to be happy about? The proper attitude, the proper... The, the, if, if you want to have the best marriage possible... Be grateful for your spouse. Because if you're grateful for your spouse, you're never going to get angry at that person. If, you, know, you always have to feel that you married up, even if you married down. And if you married down, then make yourself feel. What I mean is that there's, uh, you know, I think you guys, you guys know what I'm talking about. Okay, fine. So um, when you're going and you feel that you got the better end of the deal, like, I can't believe my wife married me. Does she know how much of a loser I am? Like, why would she do that? What's wrong with her? The second that people say that, it's, why does he like me so much? What's wrong with him? <laughs> Go to therapy if you're saying that, right? So, uh, uh, but but generally, you know, speaking, you always are supposed to feel that you got the better end of the deal. I can't believe how lucky I am that I got to marry my spouse. Because when you're doing that, you're gonna be so grateful. If you're grateful, then there's nothing bad that ever could happen. Okay, so your spouse messed up one time. All right, what's a big deal? You know, she married me, or he married me. Like, what's a big deal? Like, it's crazy the the level that it's going to change. This is what comes pulling. The highest level of gratitude is when you come to a point and you realize that you don't deserve it. Leah, when Leah named her fourth child, what did he name her fourth child? She named her fourth child Yehuda. Why? Because the Pasuk says in Genesis chapter 29 verse 35, This time I'm going to thank God. Why is this time she's thanking God? She made a simple calculation. There's supposed to be 12 tribes, right? The ima'ot knew that there was supposed to be 12 tribes. Now, 12 tribes, 4 wives. Simple math, 12. Divided by four, three kids per wife. All of a sudden, Leah gets a fourth. She feels that she gets something that she didn't deserve. She feels that she gets something that she didn't, she wasn't anticipating. She says, what do I mean? Now, I'm a, now, she's able to name her son Yehuda. Now I, pam now I could be thankful for God in a way that I wasn't able to be thankful before. Because when you realize, when you appreciate that you don't deserve something and you get something, it's a whole different level of appreciation. We are known as Yehudim. Because our one of our fundamental purposes is that we need to be grateful. The first thing that we do when we wake up, we say, I am grateful to you, God, for returning my soul. This is a fundamental aspect of being a Jew, is to be grateful. You have to really focus on yourself and really look into yourself. If you're not a grateful person, you have to stop everything that you're doing and focus 100% on why am I not grateful. You're going to lose in this world and you're going to lose in the next world. Now we can understand a little bit about the significance of Amalek. I'm almost finishing. Amalek, Timcha, Zecha Amalek. We come in, you know, the, in, in this season, if we can call it. You, have, you eradicate the, the memory of Amalek. What was Amalek? Um, before Amalek, there were two schools of thought. Two. Guys. Yeah. <laughs> two. <laughs> two schools of thought. Number one, there is a God. Number two, there are many gods. There was no, there is nothing. Right? This is like a new, you know, invention. Well, Amalek really came into it. But before Amalek came, there was two. There was, it's either one God or many Gods. You know, the Jewish, you know, you know, uh, you know, theology, the Jewish thought process, one God. The non-Jewish, very, very common practice was, there was multiple of Gods. Comes Amalek, and what does it say, Amalek? It happened to you on the way. It's a happenstance. Nothing, it says, says, what is Amalek? Amalek is what, Who do they believe in? They believe in nothing. That's what they believe in. They believe in absolutely nothing. That the Midrash compares Amalek to a dog. Why to a dog? When a dog gets hit by a stick, it gets angry at the stick. Not at the person that hit them. Now, Amalek, they only see, they see whatever is going on right now, they see there's no one behind it. There's nothing behind it. It's just a stick that I have to be bothered by. The, the, Amalek is dealing with, with a, a concept of, there's nothing there. The atheism concept, there's nothing there. What? Like everything is coincidence, exactly. Everything is random, everything is a coincidence. Nothing comes from God. This leads to a tremendous amount of ingratitude. I was once uh, speaking with an agnostic, right? someone who's not sure if there is a God or if there's not a God. He was pretty sure that there was not a God, but he still called himself agnostic, so I'll call him agnostic. I asked him, and I said, um, did a miracle ever happen to you? Now, before I tell you what he answered, think about your own life. Did you ever have a miracle that happened to you? I could guarantee you, every single one who could think about it, think about something miraculous. Now, I don't mean that you're falling out... Not your hospital. That somebody's falling out of a plane and lands on a flying ostrich, which which is an, itself a miracle, and then they float down into, like a, uh, you know, into the ocean, and then a dolphin comes, and they ride the dolphin uh, you know, uh, you know, to Hawaii, and they have a great vacation, and then the dolphin comes, they pick him up, and they go back. I'm not talking about that type of miracle. I'm talking about like a miracle that you open your eyes and be like, wow, how did that just happen? Even if you're driving, and you just miss a car by like that much. That much. That's a miracle. So if you look in your life, You'll see not one, but thousands of miracles. The more that you're perceptive and the more that you open your eyes, the more miracles you'll see. So I go to this person. And I say, did you ever have a miracle? He says, no. I said, never? You never had one miracle? He says, never. I never had a miracle. So that's very, very sad. He says, I guarantee you, you had a miracle. He says, how can you be so ungrateful that you can't even appreciate that you don't have any miracle? I ask him another question. I ask This all. This is a very famous uh, a few questions that I ask to, to these type of people. When you get up to heaven, what are you going to tell God? What are you going to tell God? He had a few choice words to say. Most of them were four letters, um, and it wasn't love and faith, which <laughs> is not four letters. But if you're counting, no one's agnostic. no one's no one's, a, no one's an atheist. Everyone believes They just choose not to. But yeah, obviously, yeah, yeah he became so passionate. Then how could he even have a... He had a whole speech planned out. Um, and he was like, yeah, exactly, go figure. So he was like, no, he was saying a bunch of things. Like, how ungrateful can a person be? This is what the Torah says. It says when, when, when somebody is going and someone denies God, that is the most ungrateful act that you could do. Look what God has given you. Look at what God has done for you. And you're denying the existence of the person, of the entity that gave you everything. That is extreme ingratitude comes pulim. Pulim is a time where we eradicate ingratitude. that's Amalek we, do, we get rid of it why because this is a time that we have to be grateful how much more can we be grateful to the fact that we were brought back to life we were resurrected from the dead can you be any more grateful than that the, the, you know, the, now let's plug it all into pulim and we'll finish off did I say we're finishing it off already? okay we're finishing off times two so I, which means I have one more finishing off so the The party of HaShavarosh. What was the party of HaShavarosh? He wanted to make a party. There was a calculation. The calculation was that after 70 years, the Jews are going to return back to their holy land. They're going to build the temple. It's going to be the the second temple. This is where it was. And people made a calculation. And guess what? Many people obviously started the wrong date. Actually, all of them did. But they came to a point in time. HaShavarosh came to a point in time and said, hey, 70 years are up today. And the Jews are still here. So he made a party. Why was the purpose of the party? The purpose of the party was to bring the Jewish people down. Because if the Jewish people are brought down spiritually, then, then hopefully in his mind that God is not going to go and take them out back into the Holy Land. So what was the what was the, the focus of the party? One of the main focuses was it was a party of wine. Which is why we have a mitzvah, we drink wine. What was the party of wine? To the extent that al went and it, you got the wine the age that you are alive. Meaning that you if you're a 60 year old person, you got a 60 year old wine. And not only you got the 60-year-old wine, you got it in a very expensive cup. And you got to keep the cup. Which means is the more that you drink, the more cups that you get. And it wasn't plastic. It was, you know, gold laden with gems and it was expensive, expensive cups. So it was a, it was a party that was enveloped around wine. Why wine? Because there's an opinion that the, the etzadas was grapes. Meaning that it was wine. That was the opinion, it was wine. So when you're, what was Ahasuerus trying to do? Achashvot was trying to remind God of the first sin. So don't save anybody, we're not, we're not worth it. They're putting them in the, first, in the first sin, that puts it in, in, a, in a sense of reminding God of the sin of the etzadas. Now, what was the sin of the etzadas? There was two sins. Number one, there was a sin of hakarat hatov. There was ingratitude. What was the ingratitude? Because Adam went and he ate from the tree. And what did he say? He says, the woman that you gave me, gave it to me. That is extreme ingratitude. We say so this, this is what Rashi says, this is a level of ingratitude. The, there was another there was another concept another sin in the, in, the, in the sin of the etzadas and that was jealousy what was the jealousy? because Nachash the snake told Chavai and said listen you are now allowed to eat from the tree why? because God knows that if you eat from the tree you'll become like God Chavai says wait a minute I could become like God? he says ah oh. I could be something that I am not that's jealousy. She says I want to be like God. So she went and she ate from the tree. So you had two here, two 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 of the uh, you know could say of the few sins that we're focusing on today, uh, the sins of the of the Etzaddas is one is hakaratatov. there is a lack of gratitude, and number 2 is jealousy. Now, this is what Haman wanted to try to invoke on uh, the Jewish people. But we know that God works midat and Midah. They're the same things that Haman wanted to bring in the Jewish people. This is the same exact things that he fell in. Listen to how beautifully this works out. Oh, this is so beautiful. What was jealousy? Haman had everything. He had money, fower, fower is fame and fame. If you were not familiar with that, it's a new word I just made up. He had fower, he had tremendous amount of, uh, you know, of, uh, he had children, he had family, he had everything going on for him. But he didn't have one thing. What was that one thing? He didn't have one person bowing down to him. Everything he had, but one person bowing down to him, he didn't have. This is the jealousy that he had. He had everything, but he, this bothered him so much that he was willing to risk so much just for this one person. What was that, Karatatov, and Haman were both generals in Ahasuerus' army. For everyone remembers when we did the Purim story. Um, the... I would recommend to uh, re-listen to every single year because it's a, a very very important to know what you're celebrating and the, the story based on the midrashim. we have a three series on Torah in time so Haman and Mordechai were generals and the king gave them a certain amount of of food for a certain amount of time Mordechai it was, it was three years Mordechai rationed everything out Haman was throwing parties you know a, within a short period of time he used up all his rations so he had a, he was a general of a large army, and Mordechai was a general of a large army. So Haman goes over to Mordecai and says, "Please, you got to do me a favor. You got to share with me your food. I'm out." He says, "What do you mean you're out? You have so much time left over here." I says, "I'm out." He says, I need, so Mordechai says, well, "What are you going to give it to me? You're going to have to make a trade over here." So they gave him they, they you know they made a they made a deal that Haman is going to be Mordechai's slave and whatever. They wrote it as a contract, you know, as well on on, a sheet, on, the, on the on the on the metal plate of that goes on the phone. In any case, Mordechai saved, saved Haman. He said, cause if, if the king, if Ahasuerus found out that Haman was, was the one who used up all his rations, he's done. It's not like, okay, one more chance, I'll send to you, but this time be careful. No, 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 it doesn't work that way back then, right? There was no liberal government. I mean, like, you're done, you're done. That means you're done, right? Please have your head by the morning on my, you know, table. Um, and the head was on the table in the morning. You know, so like, there was no, like, you know, if there's a but, which means that Mordechai saved Haman's life. Mordechai saved Haman's life, and now, what a type of ingratitude that you have. So one person, the person that you're technically his slave, is not bowing down to you? That's a level of haka'at that you have? Even for, furthermore, we know that in Migrat it says, Haman ben hamedata haGagi. Haman comes from Agag. Who was Agag? Agag was uh, was, was from Amalek. And who, you know, Shaul Amalek by the way, um, Mordechai comes from Sheveh Ben Yamin, which comes from Shaul Amalek. Mordechai was a descendant from Shaul Amalek. Haman was a descendant from Agag. Now, what happened from uh, you know Shaul and Agag? Shaul decided that he is going to let the you know he 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 let Agag live. And long story short, it was through sorcery he was able to turn himself into whatever an animal, and then he was able to escape. And because Shaul had mercy on Agag, then he was able to procreate, and that's why Haman is alive today. Meaning, because of the mercy that Shaul had, he the Haman is alive today. Meaning that if not for Mordechai's ancestor, Haman would not be here. So on two folds, he was ingra- ingrateful. Number one, the fact that his ancestor is the only reason that you're around today. Number two, he himself is the only reason that you're around today because he saved your life when you're dealing with money, when you're dealing with food of the king. This is what Haman failed. So the two things that he wanted to go and pin on the Jewish nation is the fault that he fell down. He didn't have a karat atop, and he didn't he had he had jealousy. This is what we do on Puim, we do exactly the opposite and we focus on hakaratatov and we focus on jealousy. What do we do on Puim? On Puim, we don't show any jealousy at all. What, what, what do we what do we do that anybody who asks, we give. We go and we put in ourselves as a pit that if you, you know, everybody dresses up. There's no one better than anybody else. We're dressing up, we're all the same. You take the jealousy out of everything. You're giving gifts to everybody else. You're not jealous of anybody else. The concept of poem is very, very much around the concept of removing jealousy. And also of haqqaatat-tov. How do we do haqqaat-tov? We are so grateful to God that we have an obligation that we read publicly the megillah. We republican Mikha, we make a bracha in it. And you have an obligation to go and listen to Mikha because we publicize. Look what God did for us. Even for the, furthermore, how do you do? How do you give someone who has everything? How do you give God? God has everything. You can't give God anything. But if you help His children, then it counts like you're that you're giving something to God. So we have also the, the idea of tzedakah. Whoever goes and asks any one of God's children, you don't look into it. They ask you give. Why? Because we have so much hakarat to, to God that we help any one of His children, any one of His children that come and ask. Haman wanted to bring everybody down from the sin of the tree. What did he get hung on? This The tree. The same tree that he wanted to go and bring down, he was the one who came crashing down. We see over here a very, very important and fundamental concept. The, the, the idea of having happiness on Purim is extremely, extremely important, but it's not only about happiness on Purim, it's happiness on everything. Everything in life. What is the goal for that? Look at the story of Purim. The more grateful that you are, the more happier that your life is going to be. The less... less grateful, making up a lot of words today. The less grateful that you are, the less happier that you're going to be. The obligation is, is that we have to contemplate. We have to realize that we were all signed for death on Pauline. And we came back to life. How much more gratitude that you have to be, you have to give, that you have to realize that you're here as a gift. You're here as something that you realize you saw the end. Sometimes you don't appreciate what we have until it's gone. Well, guess what? That's Pauline. You have to think about it. You have to appreciate what you have because technically you are gone. Any questions? No questions? Okay, wow. Jazakaboh. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.